Hi, I'm Sam Smeltzer, and I'm an HR healer, and you're listening to The Heart of It Podcast, where we chat about what's at the heart and matters most in the world of HR, the people. In this episode, we're continuing our discussions on the book, Courageous Cultures, with this amazing book club. So let's just jump right back into that conversation. Here we go. everyone and welcome to this episode of the heart of it podcast i am so excited that you're here with us as we close out book number two in our podcast book club uh which is courageous cultures by karen hurt and david die um and we're really kind of getting into the end that is talking about lots of different tools um lots of great stuff uh and i think that i'm I'm going to start. Uh, one of the, the places that really resonated with me um, in this section of the book that we were reading in the past week uh, is on page 144, talking about revisiting recruitment and hiring. Uh, so it's just fascinating. We've had this happen a couple of times um, since we've been doing this book club where things in life are just lining up as you're reading and thinking about things. Um, and and so it just literally happened this morning. I was at a local retailer and I was shopping and I heard a familiar voice on the other side. And it was a manager that I've worked with in my past who was not, I would say, the best manager or most effective manager, shall I say. Not a toxic leader, but just not very effective in his practices. Um, and he was talking to an associate and basically made it very clear that things had not changed. And now he is a store manager rather than an assistant manager. And I, I came to this place of thinking, how, how does he get that job? Like, how does he leave one place, get downsized, uh, get terminated? And then here he is still at the same level in this other position. And so this section in the book, when she talks about recruiting and hiring or when they talk about it, because they're together, I don't know who writes when, um, uh, talks about how you need to be really intentional and clear going into that recruiting process. And I think sometimes this is what kept coming up for me is that we get blinded by the resumes or the years of experience. And when we think about what we learned in the infinite game, when we think about what it takes to be courageous and move cultures, like these are not people who just tolerated status quo. And for a lot of situations, when I see someone has been someplace for 10 plus years, there's a likelihood, I'm not going to say it's always, there's a likelihood, especially if they've been in the same position, um, that they have been engaging and been comfortable with that status quo. Um, and this is something that has really been hitting me, I would say, in the last two years. Um, and, and we've talked about this before, where I kind of want to blow up some of these traditional functions of human resources and totally rethink them because I think they're just not effective. And because we have this default mode, we're just making our cultures worse um, and wasting precious energy um, going in the wrong direction and then having to like back up and then try again. Um, so that was something that really just kind of stuck with me there. Um, Ryan, did that... I mean, does that speak to you at all, or am I this 
Well, we'll know no, it, more on this mountain. It, absolutely. <laughs> no, it definitely does. I mean, it stands to logic and reason that the culture is going to be impacted by the talent you bring into your organization. And, you know, we also know from an HR standpoint, retention starts with recruitment as well. And so, you know, thinking about what you're bringing into the workforce, I think, you know, it goes back to the fact that so much of what we do in a work environment is hurry up and get to the next thing. That being so time bound, I think that we all too often put that as our priority and precedent over anything else. And obviously, this is a long term impact decision. Um, and so it's it's a value for us to stand back and make sure that we're making the right decision for the long term. And I think we often see it as one more box that we need to check by the end of the day to move on to the next thing that we have to do. Uh, and so, you know, I think from that standpoint, we put the cart before the horse and we forget what our real priorities are in, in that environment. Um, so we, we almost have to have a courageous culture to build a courageous culture, um, or at least the courageous culture mindset to be able to build that courageous culture um, within the organization. So I definitely resonate with what you're talking about. Yeah, awesome. So, so uh, go ahead. Go oh ahead. no, no. I, I think I was just going to continue on. I'm, I'm, I am currently very interested in um, how you assess someone's fit in their in your culture um, during the interview process, but then also how you can modify an onboarding um, experience to make sure that not only is the new employee understanding your culture, but also that you're learning from that new employee in the first 90 days so that you can kind of take that information and adjust your culture. And I, and I think, you know, I think Ryan, this was to your point. Um, again, I'm going to go back to conditioned, right? Like we're so conditioned to think about, I'm supposed to ask this person questions about the job I want them to fulfill. You know, we, we know the questions, we, we know what we need that person to do when they're in the job. The harder part is, you know, how do we, I'm putting my assessment brain on, right? Like, how do we assess that this person is a good fit for the culture? I think that's really hard to do if you don't even know what you want your culture to be. So it has to be kind of this, um, we have to give people grace, right? As they're interviewing for for our, I'm gonna say our culture, but also as they're onboarding and, and that it becomes kind of this two-way relationship around um, you're new at this organization and I want to teach you these things, but also you're, you're a new person in my life. I want to learn about how you want to change or what you want to see in this culture. Um, I'm, I was really, I was very interested in the practical pieces around uh, the onboarding, courage and onboarding. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm a big fan of behavior-based interviews. Um, I think you get a lot more out of uh, the interview process, you get the mindset um, being delivered in the articulation of the response to those behavior-based questions. Um, and I think that gives you a great deal of insight as to how they're processing, um, you know, what their mindset was as they were experiencing whatever that experience was. So I think that can go a long way in determining um, behaviorally what kind of fit they are for the organization. Um, so that's something that, that I appreciate. And you know, I've, I've worked in enough organizations where some places had orientations, some places didn't. Some places had onboarding, some places didn't. And I, I 
think it's remarkable that uh, organizations, some get away without having that orientation. You know, think about all the time that's spent leading up to bringing a new hire into the job. You know, that takes a great deal of uh, time. And then just to throw them an SOP and say, good luck, you know, it's pretty insulting uh, to, when you really think about it. But, you know, to the point, that's been my experience in a couple on a couple occasions. Um, so uh, I, I think there's not enough that can be said for setting that foundation of success. And that, once again, starts with the recruitment process, starts with the orientation and then the onboarding. It, it just feeds into that. Um, yeah, if you're lucky enough to get the kind of right fit that you're looking for. And I think about how difficult that's been just in the last year, right? I mean, you haven't been able to see people in person. You're not able to kind of feel the energy. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think agree. a lot of time you can feel the energy of a culture more in person. Yeah. Um, but, but I also have heard in a lot of ways that being virtual is almost it's almost more in your face, right? Like you're reading things that maybe you might not read if you were in person. So I just also think it's a really interesting time um, to be experiencing culture during the onboarding and, and recruitment and interviewing process. What you said is important to me, Karen, in terms of energy. Um, that's something that definitely is important to me. And I want to experience those kinds of things. I want to have that type of interaction where I feel their energy. Um, I had difficulty shutting that off to begin with, but um, when I go into those environments, I, I'm, I'm, I'm peeking out, you know, trying to put on every nerve ending on end so that I can pick up what they're laying down without actually saying what they're saying. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, reading that, feeling that, experiencing that, I think that's important and, and certainly doesn't go by the HR, uh, you know, workbook. I can tell you that, but uh, at the same time, it's pretty darn important, I think, um, because those are intelligences that we just haven't tapped into to a great extent. Um, so to what, to the extent that we can um, feel it, experience it and play with it, uh, I think that's gonna be something in our tool belt that we can utilize a greater intelligence that we don't typically tap into. You know, one of the things when you talk about culture, I mean, I've come to define culture as the collection of energies in that workspace or organization. And so when you are hiring or when people leave, you are adding and subtracting energies and it's creating a universal vibration that's unique to that organization. Um, and so even if we can't articulate specifically what I want my culture to be, what do I want it to feel like? What do I want people to experience? Um, and I think there's this section in the book um, that talks about how people are wired um, and what energizes them and talks about the types of people that might be a challenge for leaders to build courageous cultures on 174. And she gives this list. Um, but as she was going through this list, I mean, I, I, these are people that I've seen on a regular basis, you know, the silent wounded the silent ponderous, 
which is me um, in many workplaces where people never had any idea whatever was inside. So much so that I have to watch myself because I'll get into a space where someone lets me talk and I get so excited that I can't stop. It's like I verbally vomit because you finally, somebody's listening to my ideas, which is probably what happens in class, Ben. Uh, Ben's probably experienced oh, that. God. I have a platform that they have to listen to what I say and there's nothing they can do about it or I fail them. Just kidding. Totally kidding. <laughs> um, but, you know, these are the people that are there, but we also chose those people. And if you didn't choose them, and there was an intention behind it. Like, is that even a place that I want to be? And I think that's kind of where I, you know, I get to go back to. Like, if you didn't even have the initial desire to invest in me on day one, what's really going to change that on day thirty or day three thousand? Um, you know, like when you've checked out on me, and if you did it within five minutes into my interview, why am I even really here? And I think, you know, we have this uphill battle from the beginning in these cultures. And that's why I think people are stepping out and doing things like, like Liza, food blogging and posting things that you can feel the joy. If you follow her business on Instagram, you can feel the joy with every post. You can feel the love when people receive the shipments from her business. Um, and that's energy. That's energy that's happening through a social media post. And so it can transfer. It can happen in this space. We're all virtual right now. We're not in the same space. Um, yet we're having a connection and we're vibing and we have an energetic vibration here. So, yeah. You know, I used to do two exercises with all of my um, new hire orientation uh, folks um, for years and years. And one of them was a vision exercise. Um, the other was uh, a kind of um, uh, can we judge a book by its cover exercise. And so the vision exercise was I asked everyone to draw their ideal work environment. And so immediately everybody's like, what? Why do we, how do we draw our ideal work environment? But then, you know, given a few minutes, they start to really imagine what their ideal work environment is. And then we go around the room and we have everyone show their drawings. And I, you know, tell them, listen, you don't have to be an artist. Stick figures are fine. You know, that's, uh, that's all good. Um, but it, within that exercise, you get to hear from them what is most important to them for their ideal work environment. And the energy of that is we're establishing that we want them to experience their ideal work environment and at least some elements of that ideal work environment. How can we bring that to the fore for their uh, for their experiences, for their benefit? The other uh, exercise was I would ask them to write one unique thing about themselves on a three by five card and then write the exact same thing on another three by five card. And I would hand those three by five cards out. Um, and I would say, well, I'd read them all first actually and say, all right, so who, who looks like they're a jazz flutist? And everybody around the room would go, oh, well that looks like Sam, Sam's a jazz flutist. And then we would give the card to Sam and Sam would have to put on her best poker face and she couldn't put on that it was not her. Okay, so I'd give her the card. She would just have to, you know, accept it uh, and not say, no, that's not me or anything like that. And by the time we gave out all the cards, we would see how well we did at judging a book by its cover. And this had multiple benefits of it. So 
from the experience over the 12 years that I did it, we never guessed better than 50%. So I think it's a great um, story and articulation for diversity purposes um, to go beneath the cover and to really understand who the person is and how important that is from a customer service standpoint to go a little bit beneath that. And invariably, what everyone, they may not remember another thing I say the rest of that day when I'm doing the orientation, but they'll remember that Sam's a jazz flutist, or they'll remember that Karen, um, you know, plays Pinochle every weekend with her aunt, you know, that kind of thing. Those are the little things that are unique about you that are connectors. And I, I think it's important to have, um, you know, cohorts and colleagues who uh, are coming in at the same time that they can connect with. And so that, that, that typically is what happens. They start connecting based on those unique variables about themselves. And we also have some good conversation on how that uniqueness brings a wonderful blend of diversity into the organization. So it hits on multiple fronts um, as a great exercise to really orient people and get them comfortable with what are the tenants that are important to um, this organization. You know, diversity is certainly one of them. Customer service is another one of them. Um, being able to um, speak up and be yourself is another part of that. So that, that was a great exercise. And I see some of that reflected in what we've just shared here. Yeah, Ryan, that... I believe it's flautus. Flautus? <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I stand corrected. We actually have uh, many flautists who listen to the podcast. That's the only reason I know how to say oh, it. My word. I would wow. hate for you to get a beat down because I said flutist. She's probably <laughs> taking her walk right now and she's like, stop saying jazz flutist. So, I corrected him. You know who you are. It's yes. all good. Can you tell I don't have a musical note in my body? <laughs> Can't even say flautist. Sorry, Karen, I cut you off. No, it's fine. I, I was, um, so I, I really appreciated the chapter where they called out, not called out, but basically listed the types of people. And, you know, I think, I mentioned this a lot when we were reading the Simon Sinek book, is that I think this is really where, I'm going to say managers, but really all of us, we have this opportunity to spend time to get to know the people that we work with. And I think it's very often lost, right? So like once that person's hired and let's say they're doing fine at their job, like we've lost that, we've talked about this a lot. We've lost that desire to want to know what a person is motivated to do or really as long as they're meeting the benchmark that we've hired them to meet, a lot of times people are just not digging deeper, right? So I read through a lot of these and I could put faces to names for coworkers and colleagues, but it that's something that you have to sit and take time to do. And I think if we refocused and kind of reframed the way that we work, if we prioritize the people, and we talk about this a lot, prioritize the people and think about, you know, oh, what qualities does this colleague have and how can I leverage that in my working relationship with them? Or if there's a colleague that is struggling or someone that you're coaching, getting to know them as a person and a type of individual and kind of what, I mean, you know, it's the wrong word, but what bucket they fall into and then how you can pull ideas out of that. I think that's lost on a lot of people because we're so focused on getting, getting to the output, right? Mm -hmm. And, and we're, 
we are not spending enough time on that journey of getting to know one another so that we can contribute to that output together. Um, you know, I, I think just, and I know that it takes time and I know that we all um, don't have a lot of bandwidth and I know that bandwidth is at a premium, but, but I do think, um, and reading through these types of people really made me think, I do think if we spend just a little bit of extra time every day, that it really builds that relationship and then compounds just the impact that it can make in that output. Right. So I, that, I, was, you know, I really liked that chat, that those couple pages. That in and of itself depicts a level of culture to be able to welcome yeah. that experience. You know, I used to work in an environment where if they saw two or two or more people gathered in a hall talking, you were working, you were slacking off. Yeah. Meanwhile, they could have been talking about, you know, a major project that they're working on. You know, so there's some cultural axioms to that. And you almost need that permission. Mm -hmm. um, well, you do need that permission and you need that explicit permission from leadership to say that people are the priority. The process comes after that. The priorities or the, the results and the impact come after that. But everything starts with people. And I, I, I think that that's lost. You know, we... <laughs> It's in my humble opinion that we live in a very inverted uh, culture and society. You know, uh, what is up is down, down is up and, you know, all those kinds of things. And the work environment is indicative of that more so than anything else. You know, and, and I think that's what really calls to me to a great extent and why I do what I do is because I think business can, got, can be a conduit for social evolution but it also has been a component of social devolution. Um, so we've got to be careful of that. And Sam kind of spoke to that fact that in the beginning was saying, you know, we have to stop, we have to start, we have to back up, we have to redo it again sometimes um, based on some of the, the fact that we don't have the permission to do what we really need to do. We don't have the, the foundations to build that courageous culture because, you know, there's a sticking point at some point, at some area. Um, within the organization. And it typically comes down to leadership ideology. Yeah. So I know I like instantly took this down an HR hole. And I know that Liza sees this through a very different lens. So I would love to hear, Liza, how how did the end of creative cultures resonate with you? How did these speak to you, these pages? Yeah. So first, first and foremost, there is a lot of information in this book. So it's a little bit of a mind overload. And I'm thinking to myself while I'm reading it, okay, I'm not going to be able to soak all of this in, but at least I know I have a reference. So Ryan, when you were saying in the beginning, it's like a pocket handbook. Absolutely. I mean, I, I several times throughout the book said to myself, I would reference this, or I, if I had an issue, I would come back to this book and reread that chapter. Um, and then the other thing about reading through, not only, there were a lot of really uncomfortable lines, uncomfortable moments for me in the book, because not only could I see myself working in an environment where some of these, quote, mistakes, unquote, were being made, but I could see myself participating in some of these, you know, in the past, a former self, and you, you see where you've grown and you see where you still need to grow. And so reading it 
from time to time, I began to feel pressure, a lot of pressure. And suddenly it was as if, wait a minute, my focus is to produce. My focus is to keep this team as productive as possible, to keep us moving and to do it in a polite manner because one of my missions being a kitchen person and kitchens are notoriously raunchy places. So my mission is to make kitchens where I am a nicer, it is no excuse for not doing the work and we work hard and it's dirty, filthy, sweaty, hardcore, beat your brain up work. Every day is a challenge and you're making one hour goals, 30 minute goals, five minute goals, 30 second goals on what you can get produced, which is exactly what Ryan was talking about. One more box to check. You know, oh, now we have to take 30 minutes out of a day, you know, uh, or possibly longer, or does this mean I need to schedule a retreat? Uh, what, you know, what is this? And how much is that gonna cost me? And in my business, margins are so slim. I'm not alone in that. So these are the things that are going through my mind. I feel as if I could take a book like this and maybe modify it so, or modify the thinking or modify the program so that you could inject snippets of this courageous culture often enough and repetitively enough that you can change the culture without having to take a week away or a day away. Um, so my mind was kind of thinking, how do I start injecting this kind of thing? And that's much more actionable for me. I did enjoy reading the section with all the different characters. Not only uncomfortably and honestly enough, I have been some of those characters, um, but I have also worked through being some of those characters. The first thing that comes to mind when I think of a lot of these characters is that they're they're lacking something. They're missing something in their own personal lives that have made them feel that this is the only way they're gonna function. This is the only way they're gonna be able to, um, to, to work or contribute in society or have a place in society. So in getting to know the person on a more personal level, you begin to understand what it is that they need to hear in order for them to relax and that just automatically begins to, or hopefully, diffuses um, these, these eccentricities that make them function in that way. Um, so the book was fascinating. It was uncomfortable at times. It was challenging for me to think of. Um, I just can't see in the food business, although that's not true. I mean. What it boils down to is you have to think about including this, including the time that it takes to really develop family and uh, a, a really great culture when you're pricing your product. So not only are they paying, you know, for what you think they're paying for, the product, the distributor, 
the whole the wholesale price, the distributor, the retail, whatever, um, they're or they're, the shipping. They're also going to pay a little bit additional that maybe is specifically set aside for culture development. So the, that's kind of where my mind went. How can I turn this into micro infusions of courageous culture throughout the day? Um, and then how do I change the way I think about our time um, to build that into pricing of the product? You know, it's funny you say it, Liza, because I found myself uh, thinking along those same lines when I was reading this is what would it be like to have this as a book club at work? Um, you know, I've, I've instituted book clubs at, at work before and, you know, the level of depth, I'm not sure um, it would resonate with everyone. Um, I think the HR folks would geek out on it. No, they'd really like, you know, what we have here. Uh, because it really, like you said, it provides a guide for almost every scenario and situation. Um, but at the same time, I think it would be eye-opening for other units to be able to view this, even outside of the HR context. It would lend more credibility to what HR does um, and the depth of what we do uh, and how you know, we're looking past the surface, we're looking past the key performance indicators, we're looking uh, deeper into the values, we're looking into the principles, we're looking at the daily um, mindset, the, the feelings, the behavior that emanate as a result of those. I think that in and of itself would provide the value um, that would be a great exercise for organizations. I love your idea of maybe taking little pieces of it and, you know, at the beginning of each chapter, there's typically a quote and, you know, maybe even just leading off your your um, five minute huddle in the morning when you meet with a group um, with one of those quotes and say, you know, this is what it made me think about. And this is how I think this impacts the work that we do on a regular basis. And, you know, maybe have everyone share what their perspective is. I think that could be a, a great way to start integrating little pieces and parts like you talked about, Liza. Wonderful. So Ben, you've been quiet. Uh, so I would just say like thinking about like all the stuff we've been going through, just like having even like a work book club or even like a friend book club when I, I'm the only pe person out of my friend group who's in like human resources or really deals with people. If I, I have a couple friends who I would share this book with and they would really benefit from it and just thinking about a culture that they might go in and even like one of my best friends is a teacher he could use this book and figure out how he can help people like help his students become more courageous in their futures and in a classroom because he sometimes notices like kids who struggling a little bit and others just kind of just like let him help him do like help him this make him do it all and he might he would like explain to uh, explain to his class that being courageous is not just like sticking up for people and helping but just trying to just do what you can i think that the thing that's interesting about books like this and ryan you said that you know it caters to an hr mind you know i agree and i but i and i also think there is a broader interest. I, I see it, right? And I, I'm just going to speak from nonprofit experience. There's a broader interest 
from even non-HR folks to really understand kind of organizational psychology, organizational development, what makes our what makes our people tick, right? Like what makes our, our organization function? And so, yes, I think this was a really practical book. I think that it is a good tool for individuals who lead HR functions, but I also think it's a great tool for anyone who's really managing or supervising people to kind of understand like, how do you, how do you instill this culture? How do you drive this energy, right? That we're talking about. Um, and I'd like to believe that more and more non-HR people at organizations are, are really starting to understand the connection and the role that they play in that, even though their function is not HR, right? Um, and so I actually found this to be, there were snippets of this that I thought could be um, very useful for you know non non HR folks um, to use just in your teams, right? So Liza, I loved your idea about using it in like five minute increments, or because you know I think it has to be approachable for everyone if we're going to make this change kind of culturally and socially, right? So yeah, I I like the idea of using it um, and expanding the the concept of HR right into organizational organizational psych organizational development yeah um, so we'll get into which I think we're kind of naturally transitioning there anyways talking about just our closing thoughts and comments on this book um, and Ben and um, Karen kind of said it already and Liza did traces of it you know my, my greatest takeaway and I am an HR practitioner, is not to translate this through my HR lens, but actually through my educator lens. Um, and all I kept hearing the whole time was courageous classrooms. And, you know, as I work with my students, um, I've been seeing a huge gap in the their ability, as Ben kind of mentioned, to be courageous. Um, and they're going to need that going out into the workplace. And me wanting them to have that dance of clarity, but also curiosity. Um, and I've tried to do that for several years and not really mastered it. But there was tangible things in here that really, um, like where I could just see it, like I could translate it directly over almost to a syllabus and the way that you set up the classroom and have ground rules and how do you interact with the students? Like I could take this literally as a teacher from the five by five communication of, you know, strategic storytelling, you know, internal podcasts. Like so, as another way of talking to them, an, inver an informal video, um, operations excellence rallies, handwritten notes, like all things that I could do in a different, you know, modification, like what Liza was saying, but still able to adapt to the classroom and generate um, this courageous culture in itself there. I mean, because I teach in hopes that the future workforces are stronger and more prepared and able to stand up for when something is not right and know when they don't have to tolerate something uh, in hopes that we don't become some of those types of people that Liza said where we get, you know, it is uncomfortable to admit, but we've all been there. and. You don't know any be better until you awaken, which is hint to next week when we start talking about the next book. But um, for me, that's where I'm at. I know that I literally have this thing tagged to uh, start revisiting my syllabi for fall. 
and really just making some little tweaks with these exercises to engage the students in a different way um, to help them be more courageous because I think they'll do some amazing things with just those little shifts. So that's my, that's my closing two cents on the book. Um, who wants to go next? I'll share. I, I just wanted to say how delighted I was with the idea, Ben, that you might share this with a teacher friend of yours. Um, it's my perspective that there is still a huge chasm between education and workforce. Um, and anything that could close that gap is a, a benefit in my mind. Um, I think that we have high schools and colleges have produced workers. They haven't necessarily produced thinkers and strategic um, uh, thinking to that point, critical problem solving and being courageous. Um, so to the extent that you feel comfortable to share that with your teacher colleague and uh, hopefully that person would read it and share some of their insights with their students, I think anything that will prepare students better to know what they're going to face in the workforce is going to be of their best interest. You know, I. I I had a very naive impression of what supervisors and leaders would be like when I entered the, into the workforce, even after having gone through high school and college. You know, I thought that supervisors were going to be like mom and dad, and they got your best interest in mind, and they're going to have your back, and they're going to look out for you. Wow, was I in for a shocker. And so knowing what kind of things that you're going to experience, knowing that... <laughs> Some of the behaviors that you experience in high school are going to be darn close to what you experience in the workforce. Um, so recognizing that, knowing that, um, I think I had suspended that thought to think that ah, something magical is going to happen between high school and work, that people are going to mature and change and be respectful and, and, and not gossip and talk about each other and all that kind of stuff. It just didn't ever happen. And, uh, you know, I don't know why I thought it would. Um, but that was my experience, and it was a bit of a culture shock for me to go through. My, so I, I really I liked this book overall. Um, you know, my my data assessment mind really enjoyed the examples and the data. Um, what I will say, I think, is when you when you first start the book, it can seem like they're talking about culture, which is really big. And how does it apply to me or maybe my small department? And what I really appreciated is it um, it talked a lot about scalability. So we talked about like micro innovating um, so that you can take these principles and use them for yourself uh, with a couple of people on your team, but that also you can scale this to larger organizations. And I think that made this book really approachable for me. And I think it would make it approachable for most individuals. Um, and Liza, I know, you know, you've talked about it. I also can see how you can use it across different industry, um, which is, again, important when we're talking about culture um, and changing culture uh, across the board. But it's, it's, you know, it's that it's a toolkit. It's a really great toolkit. And I think it's very practical with some some really tangible examples. So overall, mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the read. Liza, Ben, any final thoughts? Well, uh, Sam, you touched a little bit on what was the biggest takeaway for me was the dance, the dance between clarity and curiosity. And of course, as I had said, there were times reading the book that it was very uncomfortable for me because 
in uh, doing business, you have a lot of failures and you have to be able to honestly assess, you know, why or how that may have happened. And, and you're always learning. So even after you've done an assessment, five years down the road, you may realize, oh, there was another part of that that I could have done better. So there was a lot of that in this book um, for me. And so I tend to lean more towards the curiosity and I can lose the clarity. So having that sort of dance, the way that it was described, and it's repeated often throughout the book. So you really remember that. And that's all you need to write down for yourself is the dance between clarity and curiosity. And it helps as somebody in business, it, it helps to be able to always keep yourself in check that way. All right, are we, are we getting too far into producing and the clarity and is it time for some curiosity or are we too far into curiosity right now? We need to hunker down and get some work done. <laughs> I think this book is really good and it's like a way for people to self-reflect and figure out Oh, I think you you might think you're being courageous in some aspects, but you might not always be. And I mean, an aspect that could be helpful to others where some aspects where I was reading this, I'm like, oh, I thought I'd be really courageous. And it's like, oh, I'm really not. Or trying to basically like self-check yourself and see what you can do better as a person. And I think that this is a good way to just figure out how to better yourself and people around you. Like, people I know in like different industries, they could use this to benefit themselves and help people around them where they can make that slight difference and help people overall and make sure that people have a greater understanding of life and how to be better as a workforce and as a student or anything that they do. Mm. I love that. Use the book as an ego check. Uh. <laughs> I think we could, uh, all right, so I'm going to buy 100 of these, and I have some people they're getting gifted to. <laughs> I know a lot of people I'll give that to. <laughs> all right, well, um, thank you so much for joining all of us as we unpacked book number two. Next week, we're moving into book number three, A New Earth with Eckhart Tolle. Am I saying that right? Eckhart Tolle. Tolle, thank you. I've heard Tolle, but I've heard Tolle, yeah. Tolle. Um, so we're excited to make this transition. We'll be shifting gears from practical um, to, well, we'll just save it because I'm sure I'll just unleash a whole nother episode if I keep chit-chatting here. So thank you so much for listening. If you love this episode, you want to support the podcast, make sure that you leave a review on your favorite listening platform. Otherwise, we will all talk to you next week. Oh,